There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. The guest that we have today, I feel like she and I have kind of been walking past each other for probably about five years without ever actually meeting face to face, which is really weird when someone is in a similar field to you and you're like, I should really know that person better, but I don't. Beth, who have we got with us? Yes, so today we've got Dr. Sarah Louise Miller, who's a historian and broadcaster who specialises in Second World War history. And really excitingly, she's here to talk to us about her first book, The Women Behind the Few, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force and British Intelligence during the Second World War. Hi, Sarah Louise. Hi, good to meet you both. Oh, this is brilliant. Okay, so girls talking about girls' history, which I love the concept. So was there, let's start with some background for people who maybe aren't into the Second World War. Was there a precedent for women working in the armed services before World War Two? Definitely, definitely a precedent. So you see women in, in war with the military for pretty much hundreds of years, but really in the First World War, you get these specially created sort of auxiliary groups. So you've got the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in 1917. There's 50,000 women in that by the end of the war have served in that mostly in support roles and then you've got the women's royal air force which is created alongside the raf actually in april 1918 15 and a half thousand of them by the end of the war um and the women's royal naval service in 1917 and they've got about five and a half thousand by the end of the war so you're talking you know a, a big group of people involved in in military service uh there who were women um, and they are sadly disbanded at the end of the war. Uh, no peacetime services exist. It's an uncomfortable thing for the British authorities to mm. see women in military uniforms and they want them out of those uniforms, give the jobs back to the men and back to their sort of socially acceptable roles in the home. Do you know who's not a fan of that? George V. He absolutely loves women in uniform and not in a pervy way. Like, in a, he just thinks it's awesome. I think he, him and Queen Mary in 1918, they said they didn't want any fuss for their silver wedding anniversary because it was in the middle of war. But the one thing that was allowed to happen was this mass parade of all these different women's units in their uniforms were allowed to march into the quadrangle at Buckingham Palace. And they presented them with a gift, uh, which was just it was like a token gift because it was wartime. It was like on silver tissue paper. It's like a proclamation or whatever. But um, he absolutely loved it. The Wrens were his favourite, unsurprisingly, because he was a naval man. But yeah, he absolutely thought it was brilliant. They did have smashing uniforms, the Wrens. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he said it was particularly the uniform. He said they looked so smart and it was so nice to see so many young women turned out so smartly and doing their bit. He just thought it was brilliant. Um, and of course, his daughter's nursing, so she's in uniform as well. But yeah, he thought it was absolutely brilliant. But I guess scaling back everything after the war, the women are the first to go, aren't they? Yeah, it's def- it's a shame because they really did set a precedent in terms of like how capable women can be in military roles. They did a fantastic job and an overwhelmingly very successful sort of experiment, really. And I remember reading about um, the Wrens myself before, where some of the women afterwards were really disappointed that they had to, you know, just disband everything and go back to their their pre-war lives and whatever occupation they may have had before. And, you know, some of them found it really exciting, you know, serving during the war. And they hadn't, well, those women, if they were young enough, I guess, and other women had another chance when the Second World War broke out and women were recruited into military service again. Could you tell us, Sarah, a little bit more about what roles they fulfilled in the West? Yes. So when it looks likely that there's going to be a Second World War, pretty much inevitable, um, it's decided that, you know, the manpower crisis that had occurred in the First World War it was anticipated. It's decided to reboot the women's military auxiliaries and it's kind of foreseen that they will be needed. It's still uncomfortable. So the British authorities are, you know, they wait until they have to do it. It's big rudging when they do do it. Um, and initially there are not as many roles available in the WAF. So, so the Women's Royal Naval Services back in 1939, the ATS replaces the WAC, so that's the uh, Auxiliary Territorial Service, which is with the British Army. And then we have got the uh, WAF, Women's Auxiliary Air Force, so that replaces Women's Royal Air Force from the First World War. So the WAF are initially given roles that are kind of deemed socially acceptable for women, things that's not that uncomfortable to see women doing, even if it is in uniform. Things like cooks domestic workers on air stations, uh, kind of support roles to keep the RAF flying, but without it looking too military in nature. But as we know, the war goes on and loads and loads and loads of men are needed in combat roles and overseas, which leaves a vacuum at home um, with the Royal Air Force. So they need to put women into more roles. So as the war goes on, the number of roles gets bigger and bigger. And we see them in pretty much anything in the Air Force that is deemed non-combatant. So, you know, parachute packing. Uh, the, the famous ones are the, the barrage balloon handlers um, who are handling the, the great big uh, gas-filled balloons. Very dangerous work, actually. And then aircraft mechanics. I've actually seen a file in the National Archives that was fairly thick um, talking about, it's basically an argument about whether or not WAF should be allowed to wear trousers because he kept ripping their skirts <laughs> climbing in and out of aircraft. Let's focus on the important things, chat, shall we? Exactly. Yeah. There's also what I call the period files, which are a, a few files in there that are kind of debates over how much time the uh, operational time the RAF is going to u- lose because of women having period pain. So really, those <laughs> National Archives files for the WAF are not really sort of enough to write about them they they are quite interesting in that respect but yeah we see them climbing in and out of aircraft uh with their trousers eventually um but another place where you know they're really needed is is in intelligence roles so it's quite a wide picture of british intelligence you've got what they call special intel which is mi5 and mi6 or sis as it was known 
which is kind of what you think of when you think of intelligence. Yeah. You think of James Bond and spying. You say the word espionage intelligence, that's what you think of. But we're talking here about service intelligence. So the Royal Navy, the British Army and the Royal Air Force all need military intelligence. Intelligence on what the enemy intends to do and is capable of doing militarily. So all three services use women in those roles to collect, analyze and disseminate intelligence on the enemy. Um, the RAF don't want to give those roles to the WAF initially, but as time goes on in the war, they have to. There's various reasons, which we do explore in the book, um, as to why women weren't really deemed suitable for intelligence work. And that comes down to sort of hesitancy over whether or not they can keep secrets, because naturally all women are gossips. But they're, uh, oh, they're missing the obvious point that girls are smarter than boys. <laughs> I mean, there, it certainly appears... <laughs> that way eventually <laughs> where's the national archives file on that <laughs> well we do have to wonder don't we if you look at look at the propaganda though you know the keep mum she's not so dumb poster it's got this mm. seductive woman surrounded by male members officers of the military services and even like the presence of women in the pub is deemed kind of subversive you're Which is ironic because yeah. there's a pub in London where the D-Day planners are asking the locals what they'd do if they needed to get like a load of people off a beachhead, isn't there? Yeah. So, and also men are easily manipulated and easily manipulated in particular by women. So no one put two and two together, did they? No. And I, it's funny because there's also an incident at Bletchley where a man is caught bragging down the pub to a load of women. Oh, I do the secret work at Bletchley. Look at me. I'm awesome. Um, and you don't really see the women doing that. So it's definitely unfounded, but it's a it's a thing nonetheless, <laughs> sadly. And the whack has to go on and prove this all wrong. Men. Ha. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Battle of Britain, with the people focus on the men. They focus on fighter command for obvious reasons. They're sexy and shiny and everyone loves talking about pilots and it's a dramatic story. But there is so much more to it than that. So talk to us about the WAF and the vital roles they carried out. The Battle of Britain is actually my my favourite kind of section of the book because it's one of those instances where it's really easy to look at what the WAF were doing and categorically say they directly affected the course of the war. Um, okay. So we we all know what you know what likely would have happened if if Britain had lost the Battle of Britain in the summer of 1940. Hitler has Operation Sea Lion, you know, on the horizon. He wants to invade and, if necessary, occupy. He said that in a directive. Um, so it's crucial what happens in this battle. And the RAF go into this battle outnumbered. Um, so brute force just isn't an option. It doesn't matter how sexy your pilots look in their mm. uniforms and how good their aircraft are if you just surely don't have enough of them. You've got a problem. So the um, the head of fighter command, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, comes up this idea to to kind of create the world's first integrated air defence system, and that is known as the Dowding system. We've got this vitally important technology, radar, radio direction finding, and that is capable of detecting incoming Luftwaffe raids and giving certain crucial pieces of information. Where are they? What's their bearing? What's their altitude? How many aircraft are in the cluster? All this kind of information that you can see is really important to the defence of Britain. And that's collected by radar stations. But it's no good if you cannot get it 
to fighter squadrons that need to be scrambled to intercept these raids. You have to have something in between. So there's this integrated air defense system and, and there's WAF at pretty much every level throughout it. You've got WAF on radar stations on the coast, literally in huts on, you know, cliff tops. The radar can see out to sea and it detects, it sends a beam out, it hits the aircraft and it sends information back and a WAF makes a note of that information. It is then sent via WAF, via communications, to Bentley Priory, um, which is the headquarters of Fighter Command, now a fantastic museum. And there it is filtered again by WAF. So that's kind of raw scientific information that needs to be put into kind of um, a form that most people could understand in this role. It's then gone to the operations room where, lo and behold, there are WAF who plot it on a big map of the country so we can see in real time with a delay of only a couple of minutes what is where in the, in the sky in terms of our aircraft so we don't carry out friendly fire, but also mm. enemy aircraft. How strong is the enemy? Where is the enemy? And that is then recorded at group and sector level. So the RAF has this very clear, detailed picture of what's happening in the sky throughout that battle. The WAF are carrying out all of those roles and they're keeping the information flowing because they are working in communications. So, you know, there's thousands of people in this system and a good number of them are WAF. And you can see how frustrated the Luftwaffe pilots were when they got over the channel and there's a welcoming committee in the form of Spitfires and Hurricanes because we knew where they were going to be and when and and that is obviously useful it leads to the scrambling of fighter aircraft to intercept those raids before they can do damage the deployment of anti-aircraft artillery letting off air raid sirens to protect civilians there's just so much you know operational use in this information and beyond the battle of britain um how important were the WAF's roles in the radar and operation rooms so Really, the, the WAF kind of keep things going in these two elements of the system. So you've got, I mean, it's dangerous work in terms of the radar stuff because radar equipment is very visible. You've got 360 foot tall tower, which is the transmission and receiving tower for radar. And that shows up. So there are instances where those units are bombed by the WAF or attempted bombings um it's also the kind of work that they're just not really used to so women were not taught maths and science to a very high level in school they were taught needlework and cooking you know it's kind well, of even fashion. my mum in the 60s was taught how to type as opposed to yeah. like any decent science exactly and then they hand them brand new technology that most men haven't even seen and go okay we need you to, to run this <laughs> and it's quite important lives depend on it <laughs> so it's quite intense pressure as well on top of having to do all this new stuff um so they are sitting in front of cathode ray tubes screens essentially um recording this information and they know what it means you know that's i don't know if i could do that under that kind of pressure um and that speed and then in the operations rooms they've got information coming in via a headset from a radar station and they're having to do and listen at the same time. And again, you know, I'm not entirely sure I could multitask that way. And the men actually felt that they couldn't. It was it was we went on record. The RAF went on record and said, actually, the women are better at this. This kind of multitasking. There, there's this lovely word they use in the file. It's unflappability. 
is what they were looking for. <laughs> <Yeah>. Love that. <laughs> Love it. Talk to us about the why stations, because for me, that like even as someone who's not massively an expert on this, I've heard of the why stations, and I know that they deserve more credit than they than like Bletchley gets, for instance. And says the hypocrite who was at Bletchley and is still talking about it like the week after. So. <laughs> the Y service are, like you say, they, they sort of pop up everywhere, don't they? They're, they're this kind of shadowy uh, figure in the background of a lot of different stories in World War II, certainly with Bletchley. And a lot of people don't realise that the interception of enemy signals, so the, the signals that were decoded and deciphered at Bletchley, actually were not intercepted at Bletchley on the main site they were intercepted by the Y service. So the Y service is essentially a listening service um, and there are listening posts all around Britain and some of its kind of other territories. And the job of this service, which is split into, you know, Navy, Army, Air Force kind of sections focusing on their respective um, opponent services, they are responsible for intercepting or listening in to enemy messages so with the case of the RAF who used a lot of WAF in these positions you would be listening to Luftwaffe air-to-air air-to-ground messages what are they actually saying to each other so a lot of the time this obviously is in German Uh, so they were looking for WAF who could speak and understand German and they had to be able to speak and understand it really quite well because you get I've actually had a go on some equipment and the interference is crazy mm. I've, I've read the WAF's diaries where they've been talking about how difficult it is just to tune into a radio signal it is hard it took me ages um it's crackly it would send you nuts after a while I think but they had to sit there for hours tune into these kind of frequencies listen to what was being said write it down as quickly as possible and then get it to Bletchley where it could be worked on um, and sometimes it's in, you know, plain text, plain English. Sometimes it's encoded, um, needs to be decoded. It's tricky work. Definitely. And um, we've, we've got to go back to Bletchley, which we've obviously mentioned there. Can you tell us a little bit about the WAF's role there? Yes. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of seeing a picture develop here now, right? You know, we've got all these units that form the the wider picture of British air intelligence. And we're seeing WAF in most of them. Bletchley is no exception. So the information coming into Bletchley is coming from the Y service, where the WAF are, you know, collecting it. It's coming in from radar stations around the coast, um, operations rooms throughout fighter and bomber commands, and Bletchley. So Bletchley is one of these kind of fixed points in the wider map of British intelligence where information is brought in that is encoded and enciphered meaning it's probably quite important because you don't encode and encipher you know basic notes on the weather how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm velour xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Uh, although sometimes they did, to be fair. But Bletchley is where critically important information is essentially um, analyzed and disseminated that will directly affect Allied operations. Um, the WAF at Bletchley are working to facilitate that. So they keep intelligence flowing into and out of Bletchley. It doesn't matter what intelligence Bletchley has got. If it just sits there on someone's desk, it has to come in and it has to go out. And if it doesn't go out, it's not useful. So we can never really underestimate the importance of communications. And women are the backbone of military communications in the Second World War. They're building up an index. So they build up this encyclopedic knowledge of information that has been collected on the Luftwaffe Bletchley Park. Um, to the point where they if if so, if someone from the RAF comes and says, I need information right now on this airfield, like that, they can find it. They know Just where it operationally is. Operationally as well, like so I'm guessing for point blank, that means that it's imperative what they're putting together. Yeah. Absolutely. And so many other operations, they need to, you know, have that information immediately as quickly as possible. No one can find it like they can because it's it's what they do day in, day out. The um, point blank is the one where they smash the Luftwaffe pride to D-Day, isn't it? That's like the directive to go out and just utterly trash it. It certainly um, you can see how the type of information we've been talking about here would help them to do that. Mm hmm. It isn't all Spitfires and Hurricanes. Actually, curse them because I am 100% a bomber command girl because of Uncle uh, Wally yeah. and his middle turret gunning in Lancaster's. What do they do in bomber command? Because they must be there as well. They are all over bomber command, yes. I am, I'm a big bomber command fan too, actually. Boom. Team bomber command. Where do you sit, Bear? I feel like I'm like a sit on the fence kind of person. I don't feel I know the aircraft enough to really... Really She's have an opinion be on that one. And say, I'll go fighter <laughs> command so no one gets left out. Yeah, shall I say, I'll say that. Yeah. I'll say that. I'll be nice. <laughs> I, I popped up to the International Bomber Command Centre the uh, the other week, and that was that was amazing. Actually, Bomber Command is is a an emotion inducing uh, mm. services study, isn't it? Oh, I can't I can't see a Lancaster bomber without weeping. So I know they're very emotive. Yeah, I want to fly in one before I die. It's like my life's ambition bucket list. It's the sound of them for me, you know, mm. those engines, goodness. But the WAF are certainly um, involved in Bomber Command and it, it, it's apt to talk about emotion there, actually, because they're, they're one of the reasons the RAF is reluctant again to take on WAF in Bomber Command is because it is a difficult place to work. They've got a very high rate of loss um, and they're worried that that's going to, you know, cause hysterics among the women uh, <laughs> obviously they can't be trusted not to have an emotional breakdown right well this is the thing I found a file somewhere in the archives it's in the national archives that said it basically implied they needed to stock up on tissues because they'd be crying every five seconds 
<laughs> which is why one of the chapters in my book looks at the emotional kind of reactions of women to warfare. But actually, some of the work that they were doing in Bomber Command, yeah, they were faced with the very harsh realities of war. They speak in their diaries about seeing men that they became good friends with go out and only half of them come back on operations. And that is difficult. Um, and one of the things that they're asked to do is debrief bomber crews. So they, they're working as intelligence officers, collecting information toward bomber operations. They're making maps. They're keeping maps. Um, they're keeping indexes in libraries of intelligence, carrying out really important aerial reconnaissance work to plan bombing raids, all of that stuff. But one of the things I found really interesting was their their approach to debriefing bomber crews. So when bomber crews come back from a raid, you know, maybe they're hurt, maybe half their crew is gone, um, maybe they're traumatized, probably all of the above in, in lots of cases. Um, they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about what they've just been through. They're tired. You know, they're they're in need of emotional support, but don't know how to ask for it. And they don't want to talk to these pretty young women in their flash uniforms uh, and stress them out. That's what people thought. But actually, the WAF were incredibly sensitive to this and ended up being pretty expert at handling these situations and gently coaxing information out of returned bomber crews that was very useful for um bomb damage assessment and follow-up raids and other operations and it's really quite emotional I was in tears more than once reading um things WAF had written about debriefing bomber crews because it kind of shows you the very best um of humanity in a time a, a bad time now that sounds really moving and um, we've got to go on to another forgotten few which is the photo reconnaissance unit which carried out a vital role and the WAF were quite important in this as well weren't they? Yes again we are seeing them all across the map of British air intelligence and aerial recon is no exception so photographic reconnaissance are uh, taking pictures from the air Again, obviously useful. We're looking for intentions and capabilities as far as the enemy is concerned. As this means flying, especially um, able aircraft over enemy occupied territory. And those aircraft have big cameras on them and they are taking literally millions of photos throughout the course of the war. Um, they then take them back to the UK where WAF will be there waiting to take the film off of the aircraft and then go and develop those photos. A number of them actually got quite poorly from um, poisoning from the chemicals involved in uh, in doing that. Um, the pictures are then, they go through a, a system which is detailed in the book, but essentially they're taken to specific units at a place called RAF Medmanham, which is now Danesfield House, which is a very nice hotel. It was there a few weeks ago um, looking at some lovely photos they've got from the war. Um, but at RAF Mebnum, there are different teams. So you've got like the airfield section. Their job is to look for intelligence on enemy airfields. So any any photos depicting airfields will go to that section. Aircraft section, you know, factory section. There's lots of different sections. Um, the WAF are reading those photos, which I think is akin to a kind of code breaking. Because I don't know if you've ever seen an aerial reconnaissance photo, but it's not like looking at a regular <laughs> photo. No. <laughs> is it true? I read this the other day and I'd never heard it before that um, they did a canvas of Britain for any holiday photos anyone had taken before the war of the French coastline to try and build a jigsaw up. 
They did. Interestingly enough, um, I'm based at the University of Oxford and that's where most of those photos came. So they did an appeal for holiday snaps, they called it, um, and thousands of them came in big post bags. And it was over at um, the university where they were kind of poured over for what was actually quite useful intel on terrain, different aspects, which, you know, it's true nowadays that one of the most useful sources of intelligence, we think satellites and things like that, it's actually social media. So it's quite similar. It's that version, isn't it, in the Second World War? Um, And they're looking for anything that is going to be useful for operational planning. And sometimes that means uh, troop movements, where are where's the enemy grouping their troops where are they moving to them to is there a build-up is there um a lot of building happening on a site that might imply there's new kind of technology or an airfield being established there new weapons um sometimes it is it's the it's the other way around so we're looking for what can be useful for us offensively um bombing targets where can mi6 or the soe drop agents and equipment so drop zones for parachute drops um all kinds of purposes to that to that kind of work very very important work possibly the sexiest of all the sexy roles for women in the second world war uh sexy as in terrifying as well uh we've had a conversation on history hacks about this before where i said i would 100 percent do this and alina said she would be way too scared. She would like to think she'd be the kind of woman that would volunteer for SOE operations, but in reality, she'd be way too scared and she'd run away and hide. Uh, where do you come down on it? I feel like when I reach the point in the, the recruitment process where they say to you, there is about a 50% chance you'll come back. And if we send you over as a wireless operator, you'll probably last around six weeks before you're caught. I would say no. <laughs> um, yeah. We all want to think we'd be that brave. But I don't, having, you know, read and studied a lot on this, I'm pretty sure I would not have the guts at all. So tell us about some of the experiences of the weapon. So I actually, my undergraduate dissertation was on the women of SOE. And it happened because of a bet. My husband bet me $20. I couldn't get Captain America into my undergraduate dissertation. Um, so I took it and thought, OK, how am I going to do this? I discovered that Captain America's girlfriend, Agent Carter, was an SOE agent. So mm-hmm. I won the bet. I did get his name in. I also got a picture. So yeah, <laughs> so I'm just saying, I nailed that bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but then I was just completely hooked. Um, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, is Churchill's kind of weird brainchild. Um, and their purpose is to carry out sabotage, essentially. Um, to mess up Nazi operations and inspire and assist resistance movements across occupied Europe and other parts of the world, actually. Um, But they also deal in, you know, intelligence and it's a bit more complicated than it seems. But 39 women are sent to France, occupied France, uh, many of them para dropped in the middle of the night with no lights, which is utterly terrifying thought. Um, they are then sort of giving, they're given cover stories and have to blend in. Um, so most of them, have, well, all of them speak French, uh, and are capable of doing that. They may have spent some time in France. They're basically risking their lives every single day. Um, there are couriers, wireless operators. That's mainly what women did. So taking information from place to place, probably on foot or by bike or on public transport, which is, you know, riddled with Nazi officers and, 
uh, full of danger. So the wireless operators, obviously, they are giving their positions away by their transmission signals as well. So they're constantly on the move, um, sending information on potential bombing targets, uh, downed allied pilots that have been hidden by the resistance and need to be gotten out so they can go back and fly because pilots are a precious commodity for the allies. Um, so it's all it's all this kind of heroic, you know, really useful work, but at a very high price. Um, and a, a number of them are caught. Some of them are sold out because Nazis put ridiculous bounties on them of up to a million francs. Um, and initially, because the Germans legitimately believed that women had smaller brains than men and were not possibly capable of this kind of thing. That worked in their favour because they initially looked at them and thought, no, they can't possibly be agents, they're women. Pay for your stupidity. Would you have been SOE? No, um, I definitely would join you guys in not being SOE. Um, Again, the the courage aspect and also just, I mean, lacking in many areas, you know, no language skills, not very good at kind of lying and stuff like that. So, yeah, absolute no-go. How about under torture? I mean, one of them had most of her toenails removed under torture you know that I is that's so grisly that it made me yes. sick yeah I'd probably crumble yeah yeah no it's yeah they're, they're, they were so extraordinarily brave um yeah. yeah absolutely yeah it's tough reading have to say it I'm, is there must be like when you write something like this there, there's some woman somewhere in this book that you have absolutely fallen in love with who is it there definitely is. For me, there are two, and I cannot ever choose between them. There's, uh, and they're both Asui, actually. One's Noor Inyak Khan, who was an Indian, technically an Indian princess, actually, through her um, her family's history. But she was an Asui agent who was incredibly brave. And she actually died. She was caught and killed. Quite, you know, just really traumatic. Uh, her file in the National Archives was was one of the only times I've come away from research and taking a couple of days to recover um because it is just horrific what happened to her but she was just so so brave and and there was a a German commandant at her trial I mean at his war crimes trial and he said it didn't matter what we did to her we just could not get anything out of her nothing useful three or four months she was kept um I don't think I could go the 24 hours but the other is Pearl Witherington. Pearl is something else. She's the stuff of Hollywood movies. So her fiance was captured um, and in a camp and she thought, okay, well, I'll join the SOE, go over and bust them out. <laughs> the two of them. Um, <laughs> Not up, having my man. <laughs> and, no, it's, it's amazing. They end up running basically a resistance cell, the French resistance, living in the woods. She's in charge of a few thousand men with only a few guns between them. Um, and they basically carry out absolute havoc on German communications of transport. She's just fascinating. There is a biography of her, and I think it's one of my favourite books I've ever read. And as well as those amazing stories, um, and in, in some cases, you said heartbreaking. I mean, it really does kind of put into perspective, again, as historians, the kind of, you know, the emotional responses you can have yourself when looking at this kind of material, you know, when you are researching um, topics such as warfare, you know, it can be quite traumatic in a way um, when you are just reading very dark accounts and experiences all of the time. 
and it definitely makes me you know not angry but fired up over the fact that this was their war too you know we we do have this and that's why I called the book the women behind the few because we do have this kind of you know idolization of the few and and nothing that I've ever said is is to to say that that's a bad thing it's not to take away from what the few did we should absolutely honor them um, and remember their sacrifices and their courage but it's it's just to point out that it's it's like an iceberg you know the bit that we see at at the surface is only a very small part of the overall effort and and when you do read these super emotional accounts and, and accounts of courage and bravery and, and capability it makes you you know really want to acknowledge the fact that there were so many more people involved who have not received the recognition that they deserve and that really drives me every day what's next after this book I have my PhD thesis under publication now um so the next book will be similar study but on the women's royal naval service um, which was like ugh, every time you go to turn over a rock on women in military intelligence, there is something big underneath it. So lots more to be done. Uh, lots of people should come join the party. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Like right. I'm halfway there after this interview. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to share Thank some you. stories of the WAF and women behind the few. The book is out. What's the release date? The 9th. So this Thursday. Okay, so the book will be out by the time this podcast is. So do go and buy it. We'll put it on the History Hack bookshop, buy it from there, because then Sarah gets money, we get money, and Amazon don't get bugger all. So that's <laughs> the way we like to roll on History Hack. Sarah Louise, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.